Connecticut and Massachusetts, Z&M Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got gotcha. you. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M-Homes.com. What is it? What is it? It's Rexy's Musical Podcast. <laughs> Since the very moment that Elvis Presley shook his hips on national television on June 5th, 1956, on the top-rated Milton Berle TV show, there was a fear that rock and roll music would be the downfall of civilization, lead to the destruction of our moral fiber, and would poison the minds of innocent young teenagers, leading them down a terrifying path of drug abuse, Satanism, and sexual promiscuity. And that was just the good stuff. But as it turned out, America was heading in that direction anyway. Rock and roll didn't just create all that sloppy stuff, but man, did the girls ever love it. And as rock music grew a little bit older over the next few years, so did the girls. So by the 1960s, a new phenomenon was created, a female-dominated subculture known as groupies. Groupies were typically female fans who just wanted to meet their favorite rock stars. That's all. And if it meant they had to aggressively push and fight their way backstage to do so, then that's just what you had to do. But in that subculture, there were certain groupies that became almost as famous as some of the rock stars that they coveted. Pamela DeBars, Cynthia Plasticaster, Lori Maddox, B.B. Buell. They weren't just groupies. They were often girlfriends, or better yet, inspiring muses of musicians on the road. And then you had perhaps one of the most notorious of them all, Cherry Vanilla. Born Kathleen Dorotai in Queens, New York in 1943. Cherry was, in fact, a self-described groupie. But if that label were the only thing you knew about Cherry Vanilla, then you would be missing out on one of the most amazing life stories in rock and roll history. Was she a groupie? Sure. Did that amount to an awful lot of sex and drugs? Oh, yeah. But what separated her apart from everybody else is that Cherry Vanilla was also an actress, a publicist, a poet, an author, and the lead singer of her own punk band. But it gets better than that, because Cherry Vanilla was also part of Andy Warhol's inner circle and starred in several of Warhol's theatrical productions. She was also in advertising. She was also the publicist for David Bowie during his first tours of the United States. She was a regular fixture in the back room of Max's Kansas City in New York. She was also convinced by Miles Copeland to fly to England at the very height of the U.K. punk scene, where she would play with a couple of guys named Sting and Stuart Copeland of The Police. She would also release a couple of albums of her own in RCA Records, and they were awesome. And then she would later run the American office for the late Oscar award-winning composer Van Gelis. Much of her life story can be found in her 2014 memoir entitled Lick Me, which is a great, great book. What I'm trying to tell you is this. There has rarely been another woman that has found herself at the right place at the right time more often than Cherry Vanilla. And she's my guest today on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hello, Baxi. Hey, Cherry, how are you? Right on time. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> not a problem. I just read your book, Lick Me. So I feel like, uh, so I got a good handle on, on things and, and what your life has been like up until like the last... 13 years or so, but there's two things that stick out for me in, in that book. And the first one is you didn't seem to get out very much. You seem like, you seem like a, like a homebody that never wanted to, <laughs> never wanted to leave. Really? <laughs> no, I'm being totally facetious. 
Oh, okay, <laughs> because I am like that now. Well, I understand that, but uh, you know, back in the uh, back in the '60s and '70s, that was certainly not that was certainly not who you were. Well, we lived. God, we lived a great time. We lived through a great period, and um, you know, we had our youth and energy, and we had the drugs and music and. You just wanted to be out every night in New York City at that time, you know. And um, it was so exciting just to go out to the local, you know, Max's Kansas City or something. It was, it was always exciting. It was like you were going on stage or something when you'd go there, you know. The other amazing part about the book, and what you're talking about kind of, you know, leads into that, is that it's hard to imagine that anyone ever has had better timing in their life than you. It's like everything that happened in in your life happened at the perfect time. You were born at the right time. You got into music at the right time. And you had this pattern of meeting amazing people just being at the right place at the right time. Tell me about that, because as I'm reading the book, I'm going, how is this woman getting so lucky? Well, of course, in the book, I focused on the, you know, the good times more than the bad times, because I went through a lot of bad times and dealt with some dishonest people and all that kind of stuff. But I, I focused on the magic that had happened in my life, because so much of it was luck. You know, I had a good work ethic that my parents had given me, so I was willing to work at anything to, you know, keep my dignity, keep head above water, and keep pursuing some artistic endeavor. So I, I, I was very responsible, very practical in a way, person. Um, you know, there was magic that just happened. I, I mean, you're absolutely right that I would, you know, be in a certain place at a certain time. And um, I, I don't know what to call it except, you know, it was the fact that I followed my instincts, which I still do totally. And um, sometimes they're wrong, but a lot of times they just led me in the right direction. And also, you know, like I know people now, and they're such star fuckers. You know, they're they're celebrities <laughs> themselves, and they're star fuckers. Right. And the thing is, I wasn't really a star fucker. I mean, people can see me that way. I got thrills out of it and excitement out of the challenge of you know getting to some beautiful Chris Christopherson or something when nobody other girl couldn't. You know, <laughs> that was all wonderful and fabulous and and everything. But the friends that I made in life, and the reason I was attracted to certain people was just because of who they were, you know, like Michael Kamen and just so many good people in my life. And it wasn't because they were famous yet or anything like that. You know, even even Bowie at the time we met him, we were kind of on the same level as him because we were Warhol stars after all, right. you know. So, um, you know, the combination of just uh, taking responsibility for staying alive and well and... Um, being kind of brave and, and weathering the little storms that come. I took chances and I followed my instincts and it brought me through. And yes, how about the people? I mean, when I think about who I was close to in whatever way, sexually, work-wise, career-wise, you know, uh, music, I mean, Andy Warhol, David Bowie, you know, Tim Burton, I mean these incredibly intense people in my life staying and all, you know, I was, I'm like, what? I'm not the smartest person in the world. I'm not the most beautiful person in the world. And I'm like, what the fuck? 
How did I attract <laughs> these people? You know. It's interesting because in the in the book when you talk about that that phase where you are you are a groupie, there's you know there was a lot of women who are doing that at the same time and, and still do, but there was something something you know very definitive that separated you from everybody else. One, it could have been about you know your love of the music. It could have been about this fearlessness or you know, not having a, an intimidation point of celebrities. I mean, your your sister had been a governess for Don Amici and his family. Do you think that's one of the things that separated you apart from some of the others? Yes, that and the fact that I was older. I had already had this corporate Madison Avenue experience because I started on Madison Avenue when I was just 17. And so I had already had this responsibility of travel, not first class, but, you know, business travel, responsibility in an office and, uh, and, and budgets and productions and dates to... So I had I had already established myself as you know, quite an executive head in a way, although I was always kind of funny and crazy about it. But <laughs> and by the time I decided I was going to be a groupie, because I kind of decided that I was like, whoa, I'm well into my twenties, probably, you know, well. And some of these girls, like who I adore, um, Sable Star and um, Lori Lightning, right. and stuff like West Coast girls, they were fifteen. And so, what did they know? And they would, they, they, you know, so I had much more of a base. And I, you know, I, I hadn't heard the word groupie until I saw that film with Iggy Pop, Groupies, Groupie, whatever it's called, Groupies, Groupie. Right. Um, and, um, and when I saw that film, it was like a light bulb. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm like that. I want to <laughs> hang out with all the, you know, musicians and. Uh, yeah, I, I love them, and I, if I love their music, I want to fuck them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the honest truth. Sure. You know? And but um, but, but so, even but even as you were describing it in the book, I mean, and, and I think this is a, a big misconception about a lot of groupies that it it was not the primary goal was not sex. The primary goal may have been about other things, whether you know just to get close to these people, get to know you know these musicians, or you know, at at the best case scenario, becomes some sort of inspirational muse for some of them. I mean, it, it wasn't the primary goal for you, and it wasn't right. the primary goal for a lot of them. That's right. It wasn't the primary goal ever. I mean, hanging out with Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Leon Russell, and all those people—that was like, oh my God, I was in heaven. It, it's funny because uh, something guided me through this whole thing. Uh, I don't. I don't want to take credit for like I did groupie better than she did groupie. Or, you know, I mean, um, but the thing is, a groupie is a muse. If, at best, some some kid just wrote me recently doing a high school uh, thesis or something on groupies. Believe it or not, and um, he wanted me to explain like what a groupie was. And I said, well, you know, at best, a groupie is a muse. Um, she gives effect, or he give, gives affection, um, support, humor, and at worst, it's just somebody who wants to put a, a notch in their sex belt. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, there's good and bad to everything, and um, and there's nothing wrong with the girls who just want to put a, a, a notch in their sex belt. I, that's fine by me, but um, I wanted to know, you know. Sex was how, how okay. How else are you going to get? 
an hour with your favorite rock star or a night <laughs> with your favorite rock star, except if maybe he takes you home and you go to bed with him. You know what I mean? And the way it is now, I mean, you even if you were able to get backstage at a show, you're not meeting anybody but, but roadies and security. That's it. Oh, yeah. So different. It's just like, like you say, I was in such a right place at the right time. It was the same with, like, the disco world, the club world. When I was DJing in, in a disco and stuff, there was no velvet rope yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anybody who, and the, and the clubs were tiny. And anybody who went there, or the, like the back room at Max's, knew they belonged there, and they didn't need a velvet rope to keep, you know, people out or something. And, and it was, so it was that moment before it got like too big, you know, it got, it just, the freedom of, of the openness of it just had to go because of security issues and everything, you know. I know. It's a, I went backstage at a Roger Waters concert a few months back and I couldn't believe, you know, <laughs> I was honored in a way, my friend who brought me and myself, we were the absolute only people to go backstage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, wow. And, you know, it was so security conscious. We were escorted in just to Roger. And we had, were alone with him in a room. I was like, wow, this is like really, <laughs> you know, in the old days, you just hung out in the hallways drinking beer with everybody and you, you got what you got, you well, know? You know, I, I re so I've been in radio for about 30 years. So my, my radio career started in the 80s. And, uh, and back then, it was a much different experience uh, right. as far as, you know, we would get backstage and, and, uh, that was exciting for people. If they want a backstage pass, that was like, you know, that was like, you know, finding the golden ticket in the Wonka bar. But you know, the, the reality of it now is it's become such a, a, a big business that there's nothing to see backstage. In fact, it's maybe the, the biggest waste of time you can get. Cause you're not, you're just, there's, there is no opportunity for connection at no. that big level. Maybe it's smaller clubs, it's a little bit easier, but it's not that much easier. Uh, to get back there now and to have those moments, and I, you know, I certainly knew enough, you know, people who who were getting backstage, who were groupies, who, you know, whether it was sexual or, you know, beyond that, I understand. I under kind of, I kind of understood their mentality, but you know, today it's like, man, this is this is not. I you know. you could never get away with that today. I know it's just so such a different world. Yeah, it really everything, is. It, everything. I can't believe how fast everything's going. But did you see Moon Age Daydream? I've watched half of it so far. So I saw it in IMAX, and I was so dazzled by it. It was so beautiful. <laughs> I adore it, by the way. And I was just dazzled and hypnotized by it. And uh, there's even my voice in a couple of little spots. Yep. And um, I didn't expect that. Uh, they had asked me for it, but I, I didn't know they used it. But I was so dazzled by the whole thing. I just left there so satisfied like I had just left a fabulous concert but I watched it on HBO the other night and with um, closed captions I could get every word it was printed <laughs> out and everything that he was saying and everybody was saying and you know I got such a simplistic but so deep a meaning out of the whole thing that Brett Morgan I love movie directors who can make documentaries that are so different. Like, he made that one, The Kid Stays in the Picture, too. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, um, he didn't make the Mick Rock one, but the Mick Rock one was so different. Like, a, not, not your ordinary documentary. And, you know, 
I realized the way he strung some of Bowie's quotes together, like at the beginning of the movie, and Bowie, he's asking him about religion, and Bowie, he says, is, any, is anything your religion? Kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but, and Bowie says, he thinks about it for a minute, and he says, life, life. I treasure life so much, you know? And then to bring it to the end where Bowie knows he's dying and giving up life and talking about it himself. Oh, my God, I was like, it's a, this movie is just about the greater truth of just we're here for but an instant and dig it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, it is true. But, you know, the the I was talking to somebody about David Bowie, you know, who's a little bit younger than I was, and, 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 and maybe they don't get it but you know i think when you when you look at at who he was i mean in in my opinion short of the beatles and bob dylan there's never been anything like david bowie there's never been any, anybody more influential and important not just to music but really to culture than than what bowie brought to the table you knew this guy before any of that happened Right. But I remember as a kid watching him on TV, and it was like this atom bomb just blew right up. Uh, right. And it's, it's David Bowie. He wasn't just everywhere. He was so unique and so right. ahead of, of his time. Right. And to sustain that for as many years as he did, right? I mean, that, nope. that's almost impossible to imagine. Even the way he orchestrated his death in the year or two leading up to it and after it with the play and the album. I mean— you know, look at me, I'm in heaven, or I, I, how, I, I can't believe what he was creating art out of his own death, you know? I remember listening to, the, I mean, that last album, Black Star, uh, right after it came out, because I, I bought it right away. And I, re, I and, and I can count on my hands the time, the time, how many times this has happened, but it's never happened like this. I had goosebumps listening to the whole thing. I know. Because... Because at that point he had already died, and you knew exactly what he was singing about in every song, giving his things away. You know, having this this uh, this this tribal type of you know thing about life and and, and death, and, and it was just I mean just a remarkable piece of art, and in a way, kind of a gift to all of our all of his fans on his way out. I know it was just, and, and the way Brett Morgan brought it like through the film, the thread. It's so simple. It's so basic, but. It's so beautiful, and it's exactly, you know, for all the spaceman qualities that he had, and he comes down to it, you know, he's just saying, it's but a spark of life, however Shakespeare said it, I forget it, but, you know, it's so short, and just just enjoy it while you're here, and try anything, and, you know, and the other stuff he was saying about chaos and creativity, in a way... The, the chaos I feel now, probably because I'm old and I, I can't keep up with the, the pace of the world anymore. But, um, you know, he's saying near the beginning of the film about an artist creates in chaos, and yet they're always looking for the form and for the, you know, the norm and the form to try to fit in, and yet, but they need the chaos to create. And, you know, I feel like now we're in a time, and maybe it's the only thing that gives me hope for this world, uh, is that we seem to be, in my mind, in a time of chaos because everything is going so fast that I can't, 
I mean, all of a sudden it's AI. What? We created this thing that's smarter than us, and now it's good. you know we're putting it in charge. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. So I, I anyway. I guess I'm doing PR for Brett Morgan, <laughs> you know, not really, but I, I just think he made such an incredible movie and having lived through many of those moments in it with David Bowie, it's hard because sometimes people reenact or project things the way they remember them or saw them or heard about them or read about them. But this was Bowie in his own words for most of it. And yeah. Let me ask you about him a little bit more specifically, because, I mean, you ran, you know, PR for his first U.S. tours and were with him for a number of, of years working for him, working for, uh, you know, with, with Angela. When he first comes to the United States, obviously nobody really knows him. You know, he's in Max's Kansas City. He's hanging out with Warhol. He's hanging out with you and a bunch of other people. And this is before that star really begins to rise. What was David Bowie like at that point in his career, and and how did he change over the course of time? You know, that's the funny thing. He didn't really change that much. He was one of these people who attracted people around him to help him. Anybody who was around him, they they wanted to do for him. They wanted to support him to, to help him. That was even before he was mega famous. So he had that thing, and there are other people in life who have that. Some of them don't even become mega famous, but they have that thing where people just want to help them. They attract people in that way, and he never changed, because and he also, he just always seemed to be confident that, you know, he'd have a roof over his head. He didn't seem to worry about the basic things of life, even though they had no money at all when we first met them and everything, him and Angie. They were they must have worried about that stuff, but David always just seemed to have time to sit and draw pictures and write and uh, talk and he didn't change. It's funny when you when you when you talk about it like that and you go back to like the days when you were a kid and, and you're hanging out with your sister at the at Don Amici's house. For all the the stars that may be in a young kid's eyes, you know, in a moment like this, you're reminded at at some point that at everyone's core, even a David Bowie or the Beatles or Andy Warhol, even at their core, they're still a human being. Right. And and a lot of people, I think we, you know, we have this sense of celebrity that almost takes that humanity out of them. Like they're somehow like these, these magical beings. And in fact... They are simply just human beings with very unusual jobs. Right. That's what I was trying to tell you about when I saw Mune Daydream for the second time. That's what I got from him. He's saying, I'm just a man, just like you. Just like, you know, we live and we die and hooray, you know. (laughs) It, 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 It pointed out his humanity more than the first time I saw it, which, as I said, I was just dazzled. I was also very high, but... Uh, I was dazzled by the IMAX and everything. Yeah. But yeah, at the core, we all are. We're just, you know, God, we're so insignificant. We're just little specks of nothingness, you know. In 1971, you were part of the Andy Warhol universe. Uh, I don't know if you if you would consider yourself part of the Andy Warhol factory, but you know, you were part of the stage production of uh, Andy Warhol's Pork and, and and a few other things. You know, he seems like 
you know, I watched the uh, the documentary about him not too long ago, and he seems like this, you know, elusive figure. Like you wonder if it's you know who Andy Warhol really was. It's if it's possible to have known who he really was. What were your impressions of him when you were in that period? Now again, Andy was one of those people who had that quality where people wanted to do things for him. People wanted to help him. I don't know whether it's they act helpless, but there's a quality I can't put my finger on that they attract people who say, oh, I'll do that for you. Uh, and Andy had that too. And Andy was a voyeur. He just, he just loved watching human nature at its best and worst, you know. And he, again, there's this confidence. I never had it. I was always too worried about, well, i got to get another job. i got to write another article. i got to, how am I going to pay the rent? Yada, 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 yada. But Andy Warhol, David Bowie, Sting even, God, when Sting was first working, being my bass player, you know, he had, zero dollars he was a squatter him and his wife and baby and yet he had that thing already like it's an ego thing and but it's quiet and they don't like advertising but people want to like help them you know and andy you know he he had a kind of good sense of humor that i don't think people talk about much but he got a he got a kick out of the way everybody wanted to just be at his knees, tell him stories, and what is that? I I can't name the quality that makes people attracted to these people, but they turn out to be big artists, big stars, and influential human beings. And you're attracted to something before they even become that. That's so kind of this innate charisma that some people just have. Yeah. They just they just draw that that energy to to themselves. And and I think you're right. I think he and Bowie are you know both share that, and 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 Sting does too. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. One of the things that 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 keeps coming up uh, throughout the book, and uh, you know clearly throughout your life, the importance of writing for you has always been like one of these essential key components of, of, of who you are, whether it's, you know, writing copy or, you know, articles or, or press releases or poetry, it's always been a part of your makeup. Tell me about, about writing and, and how it has been important to you. When I was a child in Catholic school, we had to write compositions. That was my favorite thing. You know, I didn't like history or geography or any of that very much. But I loved English where we had to write things. And I always felt that I, and the teachers would confirm that I was good at it. And I, I kind of, and it was almost secretly held this thing in my mind that I think that I'm a writer. <laughs> I, in my family, I, I could say that to my mother or my father. They go, yeah, 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 just learn how to type. Just learn how to type. Forget about the poetry. Just learn how to type. You know, they were so working class, my parents and my family, that there wasn't an artist in our family, according to them. You know, we we, we, we didn't raise artists. And um, I would get married and have kids and, you know, maybe be a secretary or something. 
And um, so there was this kind of thing that I kept secret because I was like, maybe one day I'll show them because, you know, they don't know, the teachers know, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, anyway, and also, it was something that I wanted to be able to learn. I'm not a very good student. I hated school for the most part. And uh, I'm impatient with learning. But with writing, I knew in order to do it, I'd have to do a lot of it. I'd have to learn a lot. And like when I first did, like editors helped me and stuff. Um, when I first wrote for these fancy Australian magazines and stuff and started interviewing stars and personality profiles, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, like editors gave me clues and they kept saying, you know, you don't have enough quotes. You you got to, it can't be about you or your feelings or your opinions. It's got to be this person speaking through you. But I learned on the job, like with everything I did, I learned by doing. Yeah. In, in advertising, it was that way. In acting, in performing anything, in writing. And the thing about, it's a romantic uh, thing for somebody I kind of maybe always knew I'd be a loner and end up being a very, like, a single adult. And writing is something that you don't need another person for. And you don't need your musicians and your co-writers or anything. And um, you can do it on your own, and you can use it as your own psychology and everything. And also, it was a kind of, I'll show you. <laughs> to my family, and especially like my sister who caused me to be homeless once, even though she was wealthy. And she, I remember having a, a, a fight with her once, and she said, you're no writer. Writer's right. And I said, well, what do you think I've been doing? How do you think I've been earning a living? And blah, blah. Yeah, no writer. Like, and, you know, so when I wrote, so I didn't speak to her for, I don't know, 30 years or something. So when I wrote my book and it came out, about one o'clock in the morning, California time, and she was on the East Coast, I get a call from her after, I don't know, 20 years, whatever it was, and uh, crying and saying, oh, I, I read your book, and I, and I just patiently listened and, uh, you know, just thought, okay, that's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was like a little bit revenge. I have that Irish thing in me like you know give me a little challenge and I'll show you you know you uh you took that that writing skill and you were you know not only writing a lot of poetry later on but you were performing it and performing yeah. it on stage you talk in the book about you know John Lennon and Yoko Ono being in the in the in the crowd uh, a, a couple of times but you also at some point took those poems and turned them into into lyrics and performed them with music and it's 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 fun. I I interviewed uh, Kasim Sultan uh, not too uh, a couple oh, about a year and a half ago. Heart. What a wonderful guy! And you know, we oh. and we talked you know very briefly about you know him in 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 your band because you know we we had a lot of other things to talk to that guy about. But but you talk about you know someone who's kind of gone like full circle in this. You have a love of music, a love of writing. You follow all these musicians at the same time. You're running PR, and now you're doing exactly what. Like like documented points in in your life where finally you're performing music and and recording records, 
much like the people that you have been associating with for like the last 15, 20 years of your life. It's actually kind of interesting that, that you would fall into music yeah. in that way. Well, you know, I've used this word before in interviews, but I'm a demystifier. I always want to know what it feels like to do to do that or be that. So I always wanted to know what it felt like to travel on an expense account as an advertising Madison Avenue lady. And I always wanted to know what it felt like to be naked on stage in an underground theater. And I, uh, of course, you know, PRing rock stars and then being around them so much, I was like, well, I wonder what it feels like when the moments are right and everything. Because, you know, as being close to them, you can feel when those electric moments come. And I wanted to experience that, and I did. I mean, we had awful moments on stage when I would sing the wrong song to the wrong chords. Or, yeah. I mean, I had some disastrous things. I had trouble singing on key, all that kind of stuff. But there were moments. I had those moments. There were moments when everything gelled, and all that we practiced came together, and it was just floating. We were just going. It might have only lasted, you know, 45 seconds, and it was a moment there in that song, you know. So I got to feel that, and that's that's what I wanted with everything that I do. I want to I want to demystify what it feels like, you know. At some point, Miles Copeland, who uh, started IRS Records, convinced you that where you needed to be in your music was in in London, and he had he uh, he kept he hooked you up with, with Sting and Stuart Copeland and uh, Harry Padovani, who was the, the first guitar player for the police. Right. And this is your, this is your backup band. And then obviously this is, you know, long before the police would become the police, but you know, these are, exceptional. No, I got them their first gigs as my support act. That's amazing to me. Yeah. That's amazing. So you, you talked about Sting being, you know, one of those, you know, charismatic characters, but you know, the, uh, the, the Copeland brothers are kind of there, too, in their, in their own way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very, yeah. Very. Miles was quite influential. But, you know, Miles is writing a book, or maybe it's out already. I don't know. But last year he contacted me and said, oh, you yeah, know, I want you for my book. And I said, fuck you, Miles. After <laughs> I had left London and I was having a really hard time in life, I tried to reach him to, for some, I had an idea about something. And nobody would even get back to me, return my phone call. So he goes, oh, really? I, I don't know if I remember that. I said, well, <laughs> you had a terrible office, and fuck you, you know. Yeah. But then the, the, um, you you would they, not you would not be the first or last person to have that fuck you Miles moment in there. Yeah. Life. Well, there were things <laughs> too long. As too, I don't I don't want to go into negatives, but he of was course. very positive in in the whole music business, and he tried to do some things that unfortunately I signed to RCA, and they wouldn't let him do with my music and. So uh, he was he was a good and influential guy, and well, in that moment that we were together, he was mostly trying to help his his brother and his brother's band. But um, so they're doing quite well. The oh yeah, Copelands and the Stings of the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it's almost uh, too bad I don't have you on on Zoom today because I I I, I had something I I wanted to show you which. And I didn't realize this until I was like in the last couple of chapters of, of your book that you were a part of this because I had completely forgotten. But I actually own a copy of the uh, Vangelis album, See You Later. I actually own a copy of that. 
Oh wow! I was That's a great I, cover, isn't that a great cover? Even now, the cover's awesome. And you know, I, I went through this prog rock electronica stage, you know, many many years ago, and I had a couple of his of his albums. And and in the book, you talk about how you know you had a business relationship with the with Vangelis, and uh, you ran his uh, his U.S. office. But then you also talk about how influential he was on you in pursuing your writing career and, and other things. And you talked glowingly about him, but then you didn't get into any real specifics uh, about him. I know he passed just a, just a few short years ago. Tell me about, about him, because this is a guy that very few Americans know about other than the fact that he was an Oscar-winning composer. I mean, that, that's really all they know about him. Again, and can you believe... The variety of Andy Warhol, David Bowie, Sting, Vangelis. Like I say, these people that I'm, I play a role in their lives, whether it be business-wise or, you know, it's it's beyond me. Uh, but I met Vangelis when I we were both RCA uh, UK artists. I met him at the RCA offices in London, and um, we became friends. And uh, I didn't work for him until many, many years after, 95, uh, so 97, I started working for him, actually, and opened the office in L.A. And um, he, the reason there isn't more about him is because the book kind of ends when I get signed by RCA or, you know, and then the rest is just an epilogue because there is another whole book, too, but I'm too lazy to write it. And <laughs> I didn't keep diaries like carefully and a lot of the people are dead that I would want to ask things about certain anyway but there's a whole I mean with my whole life like Tim Burton I mean that's there's so many stories after RCA but in any event Vangelis he was oh my god talk about charisma I mean he was just the most upstanding gentleman genius I ever knew. Yeah. You know, the kindest, most generous, not only in material things, but generous in his time for you and his interest in you. And just an amazing man, amazing man. And um, so that was thrilling, the little bits I did. There's a couple of things, uh, a couple of singles and a couple of other albums. I do little voice things on it for him. Yeah, you did. But, you did narration for the song, not a bit, all of it on that on that record. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was so funny. Um, and he see he had this beautiful studio uh, in London. It was a very romantic period. I mean, we weren't really that involved sexually. We kind of got together once or twice, and that was it, you know. And, but we knew we were going to be friends, even though. We weren't going to be boyfriend girlfriend kind of yeah. friends. We were going to be friend friends for life, and we were. And I'm 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 so sad in his passing. I'm so sad. He was, he was, the greatest gentleman I I've ever known. Really. Wow. As I hear you say, you've been too lazy to write the other book. Uh, <laughs> you know, having read the first one and saying, you know, my God, yeah, this this woman's life is absolutely insane. I'm incredibly curious about what comes after our, the RCA thing and, and what the second half of your life must have been like. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that we don't, I can't possibly have enough time with you to go through 
to go through all of it. But I do hope you go and finish that book. I don't know. Well, it had its ups and downs. I had a lot of down period, too, you know, hard times to get through. Yeah. But um, that's kind of always good to talk about once you get through them because it can kind of help other people, you hope, anyway. Well, the good, the good part is the down times are usually temporary conditions. There's always some point where a high happens. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. It comes in waves. Yeah, beautiful little waves. And um, Springfield, I've spent a lot of time in the Berkshires, you know. Yeah, I, I was reading that. A lot of time in, uh, in Stockbridge, the Berkshires, yeah. and uh, West Stockbridge especially, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love, those are magic mountains up there. It's beautiful. You're always welcome back. I just, again, I'm so lazy. I don't want to travel. COVID, <laughs> like, you know, when COVID hit, I was like, yay. <laughs> I'm like such a loner. I've turned into such a loner. And maybe I always, like as a kid I was. And then I went out and pushed myself into this public world. And now I sort of return to the childish loner again, you know? Like I said, when, when, when you do release a, a book or you do get around to finishing it, right. I, I would love to get a copy of it. Okay, you got it. <laughs> you got it. Jerry, it's been a real thrill to talk to you. Yeah, your life story is a fascinating one, and I wish you all the best of luck and health in the world. Thank you so much. Anytime, anytime you want to do a follow-up, I'm happy to talk to you. That would be wonderful. I appreciate okay. that. Thank you, okay, Cherry. honey. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. The name of Cherry Vanilla's 2014 memoir is entitled Lick Me. You are definitely going to need to check that out. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to follow, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, share it at will. You can find me on all the socials and email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks, as always, to ZM Home Buyers at ZNMHomes.com. And thank you for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.